welcome. You are listening to the Emeroid Digest podcast, a show where we highlight guidelines in the field of gastroenterology. I am your host, Chuma Obineme. I am a GI fellow within the Emory University's Digestive Diseases Fellowship uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And we are so glad you made it today because we have an amazing episode for you. But first, if you are a new listener or an old one and you like the content, please give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And number two, if you love the visual summaries that the Emeroid Digest puts out on a monthly basis, whether that's on Twitter or Instagram and you lurk in the shadows, you can continue to lurk. All you have to do is fill out our anonymous survey, which gives us a lot of feedback about one, the surveys themselves, if you like them, and uh, how, to, how to change it in the future. Uh, and number three, enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Emeroid Digest podcast. We have an excellent guest with us today. Uh, we have Dr. Jessica Allegretti, who is a gastroenterologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where she serves as the Director of Clinical Research. She is also the Associate Director of the Crohn's and Colitis Center. Uh, she developed the hospital's fecal microbiota transplantation program and has grown to become an international expert in the area of FMT. Importantly for today's show, uh, she is a co-author of the not-so-recent ACG guidelines on the management and treatment of C. diff, and we are incredibly glad to have her on the show. Dr. Allegretti, thank you and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, so, you know, I am trying to fill the shoes of my eloquent co-host, uh, Dr. Jason Brown, uh, so I'll do my best today. So. You know, one of the goals of the show is to really showcase not just the guidelines themselves, uh, but really the authors who, you know, work really, really hard on these guidelines, but also have a lot to teach us about, um, you know, developing your career and mentorship. So I guess I'm curious from how did you go from the undifferentiated sort of medical student to now, you know, director of, you know, clinical research and, you know, you know, creating the fecal you know, microbiota transplant program at Brigham Women's Hospital? Yeah, so I would say there's, it's probably not a short answer to that question, <laughs> but I would say generally speaking, um, I was always interested in GI and IBD, even in medical school. You know, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I know a lot of people, grew up with a lot of people with inflammatory bowel disease, saw the sort of devastating effect it, it took on uh, many lives. You know, I, I always, recall a story, one of my very good friends from high school's mother had very severe ulcerative colitis. And I remember driving to school in the morning with them and we would have to stop several times, you know, for her to use the restroom at various places, you know? And so that really stuck with me. I was very interested in GI going into medical school, although I thought you had to be a colorectal surgeon to treat GI, that was uh, to treat IBD. That was a misconception I had. And when I got to the University of Miami, which is where I did my medical school, I was fortunate enough to meet Maria Abreu, who's you know an international IBD superstar, um, and you know she really changed my life. Uh, just meeting her and seeing how she was able to 
take every patient interaction we had and turn it into a research question really opened my eyes to not only clinical care for these patients, but also what a career in research might look like. And so I had that in my mind when I matched at Mass General for my internal medicine residency. I sought out IBD research opportunities, um, which I began doing even as an intern. And then that led to my GI fellowship at the Brigham. Um, and when I was at the when I was at Mass General, one of my last patient interactions was a patient with ulcerative colitis who asked me for a fecal transplant for her ulcerative colitis. And I hadn't even heard of the procedure at the time. Um, I did a, uh, you know, a lot of research. There wasn't much out there yet. And I don't know if uh, any of you out there listening still have to do this, but when I was a senior resident, we had to do what's called the SAR talk. So it was sort of like your big final presentation. And I did mine on, on FMT. And there was very limited data at the time, just some case reports. Um, and so when I started my fellowship at the Brigham, I already had FMT in mind as something I wanted to explore as a clinical and research avenue. And there was no program at the Brigham. And so when I got there as a first year fellow, I just asked if I could start the program. And they were like, yeah, go ahead. So I spent most of my first year of fellowship just sort of developing the protocol, working with the hospital. And we did the first FMT at the Brigham in the spring of my first year of fellowship. And, and I sort of grew the program from there. And that's how it all started. So, wow. So as a fellow, you were, okay, I feel like I need to aim higher. Um, <laughs> so I guess, did you have any specific challenges, I guess, along the way of like developing this this program? And Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, you know, I think doing anything as a trainee, you know, you, you're worried about being met with skepticism or sort of like, you have no business doing this, you know, but I would say, perseverance and sort of the desire to get it done, you know, sort of allowed me to overcome some of those challenges. You know, I think really being prepared, doing my homework, coming in with a plan, um, I think really allowed me to get buy-in from a lot of the key stakeholders in the hospital, you know, and, and they didn't see me just as a trainee, but as somebody who really had passion for this area and who is going to get it done, you know? So I developed the protocols. I sort of workshopped it with other people in the region who I knew were doing it. Um, you know, and I always say, I, I think as a trainee, it can be really hard. You want to do research, but you have this weird schedule. You're working nights, you're working weird hours, and, and it doesn't necessarily always jive with the schedules of the people you want to work with. So I think the best thing you could do as a trainee is like always finish what you start. I think the thing I learned is that I got buy-in from attendings and other researchers to work with me because I always delivered. I said, if I was going to start something, I always finished it and I finished it on time because I think even now as an attending myself, when trainees want to come work with me, one of the things that can be frustrating is, is you have a project that you need to finish and then, you know, like a year goes by and it's just not done. And I think that can that can deter you from wanting to work with trainees going forward. And so I think the best thing you can do as an aspiring researcher or as an aspiring academician is get involved with a project that you feel really excited about and make sure you finish it, you know, finish it and communicate really well with the PI or the attending you're working with about where you're at on the timelines, on the schedules, be honest about your schedule. Maybe you're going on to a night block or what have you. And so things might be slower for a bit, but I would say have that communication be really open 
and forthright because I think that will that will get you very far. But I think being somebody who can execute and finish a project honestly is the most important thing when you're up and coming, I think, because that will tell people that you're somebody that they can work with, that they can trust, that they can, um, you know, put their work in your hands and know that you're going to take care of it. Uh, And so I think that was one of the biggest lessons I learned early on was that the reason why I got so much buy-in is because I finished projects, I executed, and that allowed me to further my own projects and my own agenda. And so I would say anyone who's sort of trying to get in the game, that is what I would recommend. That's a, that is really sage and timely advice given the uh, ACG deadline, which just passed last night at midnight. Um, So, okay. So I guess I'm curious, like, so now I guess, you know, you have, I mean, you're more senior in this whole role. I wonder, you know, maybe do you have any advice for, mentors now who have you know like who have medical students reaching out to them fellows reaching out to them or trying to like juggle all these different um individuals who want to do research or or want to work with them yeah you know i think it's tough and it's still something that even i struggle with you know i think we get emails constantly from people not only just in the region but you know all over the place who want to come you know spend the summer here or or what have you and i think understanding your own bandwidth as a mentor and what you actually have available. I think I want to say yes to everybody, but I know that that's not the reality. You really can't do that if you want to be an effective mentor. So understanding what your own bandwidth is and what you have the, you know, sort of resources to handle. You know, I can't have six med students working in my lab right now. They would have a bad time and they wouldn't have a good experience. So I think understanding what you're looking for, what type of trainees would be helpful to your group and the types of projects you have and understanding your own bandwidth and knowing that it's okay to say no. I think you're actually doing somebody more of a service by saying, no, I don't have the bandwidth right now than saying yes and ignoring them or not having, you know, um, the, the right amount of attention to pay to them and allowing them to find somebody who does. So I think also understanding that it's okay to say no, you don't have to say yes to every single person who wants to come work with you because it might not be the right time. And that's okay too, um, you know. And I think having a good mix of different types of trainees, you know, a resident, a med student, a fellow. I think they all offer something different. And so I think having a, a little bit of a good mix, or maybe knowing that working with med students is, you know, maybe not your personal skill set. You know, maybe you're better with fellows, for example. And I think having sort of that type of insight into your own skills and what you bring to the table as a mentor, I think is really important too. And understanding that early, um, I think will set you up for a successful mentoring career. Yeah, that's a know thyself. I, I like that. Um, so, all right, so we could spend a lot of time and and typically, you know, Jason does spend a lot of time digging into uh, guest pass, but I I really, <laughs> I'm, I'm being on the guidelines. So that's where we're gonna jump to next, okay? so. Um, okay, number one, I wasn't going to ask this question, but I feel like it's an interesting one. We always ask, like, you know, what was the, the sort of the impetus for these guidelines, especially, you know, I guess in the context that C. diff isn't something that just gastroenterologists own, you know, like the ID docs own it, the surgeons own it sometimes. So I guess, yeah, what was the impetus for these guidelines? Yeah, absolutely. So 
there is a set of ACE, there was an older set of ACG guidelines that was published in 2013. Um, and I would say these recommendations had become increasingly more outdated. And the reason why GI has really, I think, stepped up in the C. diff space is really because of the increase in popularity of FMT and fecal microbiota transplantation, which has become predominantly a sort of GI procedure um, or therapeutic. And so I think as gastroenterologists, more and more, we are seeing C. diff in the hospital, we're getting consulted, we're seeing this in our clinics. And so the IDSA or the Infectious Disease Society of America, they came out with an updated set of guidelines back in 2018. This was really paradigm shifting. There were a lot of really notable changes on that set of guidelines in that metronidazole was no longer considered a first line therapy, for example, among some other important changes. And so I think we at the ACG realized we not only needed an updated set of guidelines, we needed it to be very specific to, to GI. We needed to talk about FMT in a way that was practical for the gastroenterologist. And also we included a section on special populations, such as the patients with inflammatory bowel disease who are uniquely at risk for C. diff and how to manage that. And these are areas that ID docs don't typically focus on. And so we really wanted to update so that we were more in line with what the ID societies were recommending, but also be more practical for the G for the gastroenterologist. Yeah, that's perfect. So uh, I think with that, I really want to jump to our first case. Okay, so, okay, first case, a uh, 67-year-old female, okay, with a long history of IBSD presents uh, with a severe episode of abdominal pain associated with diarrhea. Uh, she reports her antispasmodics at home were not helping. Okay, so the ED orders a non-contrast CT because contrast shortage right now, um, which is still pending. Uh, okay, number one would be sort of like, you know, what is your approach to this patient in the context of kind of ruling in or out C. diff? Yeah, so this is a patient who has diarrhea at baseline, presumably. It doesn't sound like she's taking any antidiarrheals that we know of. She's probably just taking Bentol, you know, for her cramps occasionally, and it's not helping. She has an acute change in her abdominal symptoms, but from what we were told so far, unclear if she had any changes in her bowel movement. So worsening diarrhea, we don't know yet. So I would say if you know, this patient has a very tender exam, abdomen on exam. She presumably, because they ordered a CT scan, so there was probably something concerning on her exam. If her white count was very high, for example, or elevated from her baseline, um, and there was any changes in her diarrheal symptoms, to me, that would at least warrant a trigger, probably for C. diff testing. Now, I would want a little bit more history. Like, did she take antibiotics recently? Did she just go to the dentist? Did she just have a UTI? All of these things that are pretty common scenarios. Um, so I think often, you know, you can tease out something that probably happened recently, like, oh, yeah, actually, like last month, I was given clindamycin for a dental procedure. Um, and then it all sort of starts to come together. I would say if she's had none of those things, her diarrheal symptoms are at baseline, and this is more abdominal pain only. I don't know that that would automatically trigger C. diff testing for me. I would be worried more about things like gallbladder disease, appendicitis, you know, other sort of acute abdominal pain syndromes. So to me, there's still a bit of history I'd want to tease out before I would say definitely this patient needs a C. diff test. Yeah, yeah. 
So I guess uh, this is a history on the fly. So she'll, I'll say that she has not been to the dentist, no UTIs, but her diarrhea has sort of ballooned. You know, she typically has like two to three bowel movements a day, but now she's having closer to seven to eight. Um, and moving the case a little bit forward, she ends up actually getting tested for C. diff in the ED and the PCR comes back positive. Mm -hmm. What is your next step in testing? Yeah, so the I'll get on my testing soapbox right now. So we, um, we did try to make this pretty clear in the guidelines. I'll tell you what I do as well. So there are probably three main commercially available C. diff tests that are out there that you might inter, you know, interact with in practice. So the first thing I would just say is know what testing your hospital system offers because they're not all the same. Not all C. diff tests are created equal and you need to understand what you're ordering and how to interpret it because they don't all mean the same thing. And so I'll just sort of run through them with you quickly. The first test you might encounter is the GDH test or the antigen test. This is an ELISA-based test you can consider this a first pass screen. It is telling you about the presence of organisms because GDH is an enzyme that all C. diff isolates have, both the ones that make toxin and the ones that don't. It is telling you like organisms present, yes or no. If the answer is no, that patient can't possibly have C. diff, you move on. If the answer is yes, often this is reflex to the toxin test. This is an EIA, ELISA-based toxin test. It can call toxin, EIA toxin. It is actually looking for the presence of toxin. And so if that is present, that patient has C. diff infection. Remember, you need toxin to have C. diff infection, not just organisms. The organisms don't make you sick, it's the toxin. And so the problem is, is the earlier iterations of this test, if we have anybody listening who's been practicing for a while, you might remember when we used to send three consecutive stool tests in a row on hospitalized patients because the testing characteristics were not very good. So you needed to do that to increase the sensitivity of diagnosing C. diff. We don't do that anymore because the testing characteristics have gotten a lot better. But because of that initial concern of the low sensitivity of the toxin-based test, many institutions turn to PCR only or PCR confirmatory testing. And let's talk about why that's problematic. PCR is a test that tells you about the presence of genetic material that codes for toxin. It does not tell you about the presence of toxin. So you will see the report, it'll say toxin DNA, positive or negative. So you'll see the word toxin and you'll think, oh, this is telling me about toxin. It is not. It is telling you about if there is an organism there that has genetic material that codes for toxin. So if you only have a PCR test in front of you, nothing else, you cannot distinguish colonization from actual infection. And remember, you need toxin to make the diagnosis of infection the organism itself does not make you sick. So what the guidelines recommend is a two-step testing algorithm, and this is what I do in my practice as well. You wanna start with your highly sensitive test. That can be either your GDH or your PCR. Both of those tests tell you about presence of organisms, yes, no. If the answer is no, you're done. If the answer is yes, reflex to that toxin-based test and look for the presence of toxin. If that is positive, you've made the diagnosis. If that is negative, that patient is colonized and you need to look for another source of their diarrhea. So with just a PCR test in front of me, 
I would want a reflex to a toxin-based test now to confirm if this is real or if this patient is simply colonized. We can certainly talk through what happens if you don't have toxin-based testing available in your hospital, because that's that's sort of like a clinical aside, and we can talk about what to do there if you want. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I hadn't had that, but yeah, I guess because there, I imagine there are some people listening who perhaps, yeah, they never, perhaps they don't have yeah. toxin available. And yeah, it's sort a of huge stuck. problem. Many yeah. of I'm sure many of you listening are like, but Jessica, I only have PCR in my hospital. What am I supposed to do? And I hear you, I understand. And about 83% of the centers around the country still are only doing PCR. And so what I would say is, is if you only have PCR testing in front of you and your clinical suspicion is now high, let's say the patient has the right history, you know, their white count is up, their, their exam is tender, maybe they even have colitis on that CT scan and you only have the PCR test, then I think no one would fault you for starting to treat them with, say, vancomycin or fedexamycin, which are both now considered first-line therapeutics on the guidelines. But what I would remind you is there is no vancomycin resistance to date. There is none that is clinically has been clinically expressed by C. diff. And so if it is real, the patient should have a clinical response. So within 72 hours, you should be seeing that the frequency is decreasing, the consistency is improving. They may not be 100% better, but you should be noting something. There is no such thing as refractory C. diff. That is a term you should just not use. There's no such thing. So if the patient after 72 hours is either getting worse or hasn't had any improvement at all, you have missed the diagnosis and you need to look for something else. That is excellent. Um, Okay. So for this case, you get toxin positive. Okay, so we've confirmed C. diff. Um, we talked a little bit about therapy for this patient or for, for patients in general. I wonder, you know, you mentioned to, I guess we, we have mentioned, you know, metronidazole as well. How do you, I guess, go about determining um, what therapy to choose and duration? Yeah, great. So I would say for primary C. diff, which means first episode, Yes, this is our first episode. You have the options of either vancomycin or fedaxomycin. So on the ACG guidelines, they're both considered sort of equally good as a first-line agent. I will just let you guys know that the IDSA, again, the Infectious Disease Society, just amended their set of guidelines to say that they actually prefer fedaxomycin as a first-line over vancomycin. We reviewed the literature as the ACG guideline committee, and we did not think that the data suggested putting fedaxomycin over vancomycin. We consider them as equal options for first-line therapeutics. So I think the choice then often comes down to cost. I think there are still certain scenarios where I would choose fedaxomycin over vancomycin, uh, a severely immunocompromised patient, a patient with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, You know, I think the data... Fedaxomycin was found to be non-inferior to Vanco in their head-to-head, but the data does suggest that there are slightly decreased risk of recurrence when you use Fedaxomycin over Vanco. And so in a patient who's already at high risk for recurrence, such as the ones I just mentioned, I may preferentially use Fedax if I can get it. Remember, it's still on patent. It's still pretty expensive. There are programs you can get to try to minimize cost. Um, So if you can get it, great. But if you can't, I think vancomycin is still a really good 
uh, affordable option. Um, if your patient is still having trouble getting vancomycin affordable, you can use a compounding pharmacy and get the liquid formulation. And that actually brings the cost way down. So those are some some tips and tricks you can use. Oh, okay. And then uh, not to inject any heresy here, but uh, uh, metronidazole for low-risk patients with uh, C. diff? Yeah. So my personal practice, I would say what we put on the guidelines and what I do in practice slightly differ. I never use metronidazole. Never, ever. I don't like it. Patients feel bad on it. They get that metallic taste in their mouth. It often makes people feel nauseous. They... Um, you know, I would say they already don't feel well and you're giving them a drug that makes them feel worse. And the failure rates of metronidazole are upwards of 20%. So I would say even in my own data set that we published a few years back, having used metronidazole as your first line agent puts you at significantly higher risk of recurrence because again, the failure rates are just much higher. You might be asking why that is. Well, we know that around the year 2000, we start to see an increase in more hypervirulent strains of C. diff. These are C. diff strains that produce just more toxin. And so metronidazole is just not good enough at treating those. And so we don't do strain level analysis when you're testing your patient. And so if your patient has one of these strains, I mean, they're definitely not going to achieve cure with metronidazole. And so my personal practice, partly because I'm an IBD doctor also, so most of my patients have concurrent IBD. I never use metronidazole. Now, I think we felt that it was reasonable to put this caveat on the guidelines that for an ultra low risk patient who really, maybe they can't afford the other two, maybe because of insurance reasons they can't get it, that you're not necessarily causing harm by giving metronidazole. We didn't want to take it off the table completely because there still may be some scenarios where metronidazole may be your only option. And so we wanted to give people essentially permission to say, listen, it's okay. If you need to use metronidazole, it's okay. But really vancomycin and fidaxomycin are preferred. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. We're jumping to case two. Okay. So a 45 year old female with a history of breast cancer uh, on chemotherapy presents with two days of diarrhea. Okay. She is found to be C. diff, PCR, and toxin positive, And she started on vancomycin. But she has questions about the use of probiotics in C. diff infection. She already takes probiotics intermittently for abdominal discomfort and distension and would like to know what their role is uh, in addition to the antibacterial therapy she's already on. So what's the role and are there any downsides to to probiotics? Yes, I would say the role is there is none. Stop taking them. That's like the short Um, so what I would first ask her, even before we dive into this is why were you taking that probiotic sort of for health? I'm putting health in quotes here. You can't see me. This is a podcast. Um, I think a lot of patients take probiotics because they think they're supposed to, because they think it's healthy because, you know, they're doing something good for themselves. So I say, why did you start taking it? It was because somebody told them to, or because they thought they have to, and they haven't noticed one bit of difference on them or off of them. I would say, save your money, save your money. Now, if she was to say, listen, I started taking it for whatever symptom and it actually did improve, I say, that's fine. I'm not trying to take it away from you if you really did derive benefit from it. But I would say if you actually get into it with patients, most people don't know why they're taking them and haven't noticed any difference on them. I always remind patients these are not regulated by the FDA. 
they nobody knows truly what's in them. They're not, you know, like off the shelf. There may be batch variation from box to box, bottle to bottle. Um, and so I think really trying to understand why patients are taking them, I think is really important because most people don't know and haven't derived benefit. They just think they're supposed to. Now, specifically within the realm of C. diff, the, and, and we do have a section on probiotics in the guidelines, there is no role for primary prevention, meaning taking a probiotic to prevent a C. diff infection. The data does not support that. And there is also no role for secondary prevention, meaning you've had an episode of C. diff, and now you're going to take a probiotic to prevent that next episode. So it, and I would say too, most patients will start taking a probiotic when they're on their QID dosing of vancomycin. So think about that. They're taking an antibiotic and then what, chasing it with a probiotic? They're killing whatever's in that probiotic already. So I would say certainly there's no role for taking a probiotic during the antibiotic course. What I often will tell patients, there is a great study that was published in Cell back in 2018 that showed patients who got a course of antibiotics, they had three groups, those who basically were left to spontaneously recover their microbiome, those who got probiotics, and those who were given an autofecal transplant, so given their own stool back. And compared to the uh, probiotic group, the spontaneous recovery group actually had a much faster and more complete recovery of their microbiome. Actually, the group that got probiotics had a more stunted recovery. And so you actually might be blunting the regrowth of your microbiome by giving yourself a probiotic instead of just, you know, letting your microbiome recover on its own. And so I think the tide has really turned on probiotics in the last couple of years. And so I always tell patients, there's just no need, save your money, you know, we'll work on your diet, et cetera. Okay, excellent. Uh, okay, so this patient um, actually, you know, after being started on, you know, Oral Bank, um, she she actually requested that she, you know, she was having too many bowel movements, so they actually ended up admitting her to the hospital for, for further evaluation, okay? Um, three days into the course, she feels like her bowel movements have improved some. You know, they've gone from like 10 to about six a day, but she really desires further symptomatic therapy. Um, so I guess what are the, what's the role for like some of these conservative agents to in managing patient symptoms like you know, paramide, fiber, cholestyramine, like how do you use these in, in practice or do you use them at all? Yeah. So I would say, yes, I use all of the above. Um, mm. I would say too, this is a patient who's on chemotherapy. They have other reasons for having diarrhea. In addition, um, you know, I always screen for irritable bowel syndrome sort of at baseline. I think it's important to know if the patient had altered bowel movements to begin with, you're sort of in the in that visit where you're dealing with the acute diarrhea, the acute symptoms, you may forget to ask, well, like, what's normal for you? What was your baseline? And what you'll find is that a lot of patients, especially women, it's extremely common, do have some low-level irritable bowel syndrome to begin with. Maybe they had intermittent diarrhea or even constipation, um, bloating, et cetera. And we know that these patients are at increased risk for post-infection irritable bowel syndrome as well. So sort of understanding that you may have um, multifactorial reasons why they have some altered bowel movements during this course and this patient's on chemotherapy. So there's a lot going on. So again, you want to see that the you do have a symptomatic improvement on the antibiotic. Um, good. Sounds like we've achieved that, but there's clearly some other things at play. So I think there is a 
a sort of longstanding dogma that C. diff no antidiarrheals. That's not true. You can use antidiarrheals safely in these patients. What we often say is give it about 48 to 72 hours to, again, know that you're getting that symptomatic improvement, that, you know, toxin burden has come down, that you're already on your your way. And then you can safely use things like loperamide to help slow things down while you're on the antibiotic course as well. What I wouldn't recommend doing is using cholestyramine or cholestid during the antibiotic course. Cholestyramine, I think, is a great antidiarrheal for, you know, bile acid diarrhea. It works great in IBS. Um, but remember, it very effectively binds vancomycin. And so if you are on a four times a day vancomycin regimen, it will be almost impossible to try to figure out where to put that cholestyramine or cholestid in between those vanco courses where it's not going to affect the efficacy of that vancomycin. It would just be, the person would have to have like a million alarms throughout the day. You know, it would just be very, very challenging. So I usually reserve that for after the antibiotic course is done if we still need to treat some symptoms of post-infection irritable bowel syndrome. And I do the same with fiber. I usually use Imodium during that acute course to keep them comfortable. Then once we're sure the C. diff is gone, uh, you know, I always see patients, um, you know, at that eight-week follow-up visit, that's when we know that the C. diff hasn't recurred, that they're doing well. And then we can really start to more aggressively treat their post-infection IBS if they still have symptoms of that. And then we can really load on the fiber, add cholestyramine, et cetera, um, and really be a bit more aggressive about those sort of lingering GI symptoms. Yeah, perfect. Okay, uh, we're moving right along. Case number three. Okay, so a 56-year-old man... Uh, with a history of recurrent UTIs due to a chronic indwelling Foley, uh, presents with elevated WBC on UA. Uh, he is actually found to have E. coli bacteremia, uh, and which is presumed secondary uh, to his UTI. Uh, so he's he's admitted because he's you know he's quite sick, can't go home. Uh, and about four days into his inpatient stay, he develops diarrhea. Uh, an astute uh, doc checks for both uh, PCR and toxin with their both positive. Uh, he actually um, is actually, you find out that he's he's actually had an episode of C. diff uh, one year ago. So this is a recurrent C. diff. Um, how do you approach uh, duration of, how do you approach therapy and duration uh, for a patient like this? Well, let me ask you a question. Is C. diff a year later recurrent C. diff? I would argue, no, it is not. So okay. typically yeah. the window of recurrence is about eight weeks. So if C. diff is going to recur, it most commonly recurs within week one and week to week four after stopping that antibiotic therapy. And so, uh, you know, recurrent C. diff is literally these sequential episodes. An episode a year later, to me, is a new primary episode and not recurrent C. diff, and I wouldn't treat it as such. So typically, true recurrent C. diff is, again, within that eight-week window. Now, if somebody had an episode like at week nine, would I say that that's not recurrent C. diff? No, I mean, you know, within reason. But a year later to me is not recurrent C. diff. So let's pretend that this patient had actual recurrent C. diff. And yes, let's, yeah. You know, a month ago, they have just been treated. Um, you know, how you treat recurrent C. diff, certainly, I would say the big take-home message is do something different. If you did a standard course of vancomycin for that first episode, you should be thinking about either fedaxomycin or a vancomycin taper for this first recurrence or second episode. 
That being said, this patient is also on broad spectrum antibiotics now, and they're probably going to be on broad spectrum antibiotic, you know, antibiotics long term, it sounds like. So this patient is at increased risk. We're already going down this path of recurrence. So this is a patient that you might want to say, put on a prolonged taper, get them feeling better. And in some of these high risk patients, you can even taper them down to a daily dose or every other day dose as sort of a maintenance therapy and actually keep them on it as a preventative strategy while they're getting multiple rounds of antibiotics to protect them. Now, this is a patient who's only on their first recurrence. You may want to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and see. But given that they had a pretty significant episode, it landed them in the hospital, a subsequent recurrence might be a really significant event for a patient like this. You, you know, there's really no harm um, in keeping them on a daily dose of oral vancomycin as sort of a preventative strategy while they have this indwelling catheter in, who knows how long that course is going to be while they're on sort of, you know, a longstanding course of other antibiotics. There's really, it's really quite safe to do that. And so I have a lot of patients who are just on a daily dose of Anko. It's just, just like their blood pressure med. It's another maintenance therapy for them. And we keep them on it as long as we need to. So that might be a strategy you might want to think about in a patient like this. Yeah. And then how do you, um, I, I guess I've heard a lot of different stuff in, in, in terms of the taper. Is there like a, certain approach that you take to, to tapering or like what? Yeah. yeah, so there isn't one standard taper you must do. What mm -hmm. I generally say is, you know, the one that has you taking a vanco like every three days, like who can remember that? So usually what I do to try to simplify it for the patients is two weeks at four times a day, two weeks at twice a day, two weeks at daily, and then like two weeks at every other day and then stop. You know, so just like really try to simplify it. I think the biggest point is that you want to really draw it out. You know, I would say somewhere between six and eight weeks. And you want to have a point in the end of the taper where you're not giving the dose every day. You want to allow for that some of that recovery time. And so you do need some days where you're not on therapy. So whether that's every other day, every two days, I just find as a patient, like how could I ever remember to take something every three days? I feel like you definitely mess that up. So I try to simplify it as much for patients, but there isn't a right or a wrong taper as long as you're doing something in that realm. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect. All right. Uh, that was great. Okay. So case four. Okay. So a 65 year old male, okay. With the history of coronary artery disease, he actually had a drug eluding stent placed two months ago um, with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, presents uh, with sepsis, which they've to be secondary to a gram negative rod bacteremia. So he's also, this guy's on broad spectrum antibiotics. He's in the ICU and he develops diarrhea. Okay. It's thought to be secondary to um, just antibiotic use. And so it's actually initially con treated conservatively uh, without anti antibiotic therapy. The patient subsequently becomes uh, more ill, uh, white blood cell count of 19, creatinine's 2.3, and albumin's 2.1. Uh, he develops a tense and distended abdomen uh, and has not had a bowel movement in 48 hours. Uh, so you are now consulting on this patient uh, coming new on service, and they're, you know, the team has a concern for, for C. diff. Um, I guess one, how do you, how, how would you approach this patient? And then how would you approach diagnosis in a patient who's not having diarrhea? Yeah. So I would say, you know, with patients with fulminant C. diff, there certainly can be a component of ileus. Um, and I would say 
my personal opinion is that even in the patients who are still stooling, if they're in the ICU and they're that sick, they probably have ileus anyway. Um, you know, and, and so the, their GI motility is probably extremely poor. And so even if you're giving them oral meds, they're probably not getting to where they need to go. So whether they're stooling or not, I think rectal therapies are absolutely needed. What I would say too is you need to make the diagnosis, right? So whether or not, you know, this patient probably has a rectal tube in because they're in the ICU. So I'm sure like something is coming out, even if it's not voluminous diarrhea. So there's probably something you can send off. And if they're that sick and it's from C. diff, I mean, the toxin levels are probably through the roof. So you should be able to get some diagnostics. Now, let's say you absolutely, there's nothing, the patient's crumping, you don't know what to do. What you can do is literally just go to the bedside and do a gentle flexible sigmoidoscopy and actually look for pseudomembranes. You can easily do that. You know, you're not going to perf the patient. We do this all the time, you know, use CO2. We go in and I would say if the patient is really septic and you think it's from C. diff, there should be pseudomembranes present. If the patient doesn't have pseudomembranous colitis and they're on pressors, that is, it's the, you've missed the reason for this sepsis. There's another infection because remember what pseudomembranes are, are just pus bubbles. That's all it is. It's because there's a lot of apoptosis and cell death that's happening in the colon from all the toxin present. And so if the C. diff is that severe, you should see pseudomembranes. So if you're just not sure and you can't get a test for whatever reason, that is sort of the sort of, and you know, like last resort, go, just go in and take a look. Um, there is also a role for using, let's say you do see pseudomembranes. Uh, I would say maximum medical therapy in these patients should always include rectal vancomycin. I always say, you know, we put it as a, in the guidelines, it says, you know, if component of ileus. And, and so I would say oftentimes I'll get called by the house staff or by my fellows that say like they're on the IV metronidazole and the oral vancomycin. And I'll say, what about the rectal vancomycin? And they'll say, well, they're still stooling a lot. Again, if the patient is sick enough to be in the ICU, there is definitely a component of ileus. And I am sure that that oral vancomycin is probably sitting all the way up here, probably still in their stomach, and it probably hasn't gotten where it needs to go. And there's just little downside to adding the rectal vancomycin. I have seen many patients who have turned around very quickly just with the addition of rectal vancomycin after 24, 48 hours. So when in doubt, add the rectal vancomycin and, and watch the patient closely. Now, let's say you've had them on the rectal vancomycin and they're still not getting better. There is a role for FMT in patients with fulminant C. diff. Um, Monica Fisher out of Indiana University really pioneered this protocol. She's published her protocol. We use it at the Brigham. Um, so if the patient has not responded to maximum medical therapy after about 72 hours, again, you go to the bedside, you do a gentle flexible sigmoidoscopy, you look for those pseudomembranes, you do the FMT, you put them back on anti-CDF antibiotics, and then you repeat the FMT every three to five days until they're better. And actually, uh, Monica has been able to show that she has a, had a 91% cure rate in this patient population by using this method. And these are patients who are often older, have significant comorbidities. Um, you know, they've got a lot going on. The surgeons don't want to take these patients to the OR, understandably. And, you know, if they're not doing better, total colectomy is like the curative the, the curative surgery for this, so extremely morbid. So if we can save these patients with FMT, um, that's that's great. I would say often if you go in, you do the FMT, they are not getting better. It's usually because there's another source of their sepsis as well. So it can sort of be diagnostic in that way also. 
Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's a, I guess there was a little bit of literature when they, in, in the, the guidelines about, you know, total colectomy versus like this whole, I guess, like diverting, I think, ileostomy. Yeah. And then like lavage of, you know, the colon, yeah. <laughs> the residual colon. I don't know. Do you, do you sort of leave it to the surgeons or do you kind of advocate for, for one thing or the other when Surgeries. Yeah, so this, um, so it, it was used to, I mean, it was traditionally, it's total colectomy and ileostomy. Um, there was, you know, and this is from the surgical literature mostly, and there was a colorectal surgeon on the guidelines committee as well. So there were a lot of studies looking at diverting loop ileostomy where you lavage the vancomycin through the loop into the colon while you're sort of giving the patient bowel rest because you've brought that diverting loop up. Now, these studies, as you can imagine, were incredibly hard to enroll in, and I think they're completely center dependent. So you have to have surgical expertise at your site to be able to do that. So certainly if your surgeon isn't comfortable doing a diverting loop ileostomy, like you don't wanna be pushing them to do that. You'd rather save the patient's life through the total colectomy and endoleostomy. So I think it's gonna be center to center dependent and surgeon dependent. I will say it's certainly not standard that patients get a diverting loop ileostomy. And so I would say only if you're at a center where the surgeons are very comfortable with this technique, um, do I think it's an option. So I think it depends on where you work, honestly, but you're never wrong with doing a total colectomy and ileostomy because that's can be life-saving. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last case, super quick. Okay, so case number five. 32-year-old female uh, presents with abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. She notes a history of extensive uh, ulcerative colitis uh, and says this is classic for a flare. She even tells you that she hasn't been taking Humira because the pharmacy hasn't been sending it on time. And so she's, she's got a little bit of poor compliance. Um, so I'll just get to the first part. So she does undergo CDIP testing. Okay, PCR toxic positive. Um, and... I guess the question at this point is, you know, how is the how is the management of like an IBD patient or I guess the treatment? Yeah, a little bit different in IBD versus a, a patient without IBD. Yeah. So I would say, again, we have a section on special populations in the guidelines because these patients are. Um, extremely high risk for C. diff. All IBD patients have about a 10% lifetime risk of getting C. diff and then an almost five-fold increased risk of recurring once they have it. So any patient with IBD presenting with new or worsening symptoms, the, one of the first things you should do is test them for C. diff, always. So if you do test them and you confirm that they do have, in fact, C. diff, again, you never want to be using metronidazole in a patient with IBD, you want to always be using either vancomycin or fidaxomycin. There is literature out of David, David Rubin's group from Chicago that using longer courses, even in a primary episode with these patients, may be beneficial, which is why in the guidelines we said instead of a 10-day course, you should at minimum be using a 14-day course of vancomycin to start in a patient with IBD. David Rubin's literature suggested a four-week course, actually, they found to be beneficial. Um, but so I would say in practice, you want to at least be starting with a 14-day course. I think the other thing that often gets undertreated is this patient's IBD. You know this patient has not been taking her Humira. You know that her IBD is active. That's probably why she got this C. diff infection from all that mucosal breakdown. And so you cannot be afraid to also treat her IBD. I think there's a lot of fear around immunosuppression in the setting of an infection, there are a lot of other infections where we also use steroids and other immunosuppressants, say meningitis, for example. You got to prevent that brain swelling, right? So steroids are used. 
this is a similar situation. The C. diff is making the IBD worse. If you do not treat the IBD, you are never going to get this situation under control. So what I would say is get the patient on antibiotics, let them cool off for about 48 to 72 hours, and then either restart their Humira if that's reasonable, restart another biologic. I would say we try to avoid steroid use altogether if you can, but if this patient is really going down the tubes and you need to use steroids, I will. I'll try to use the lowest dose possible, but I will even use steroids if the patient is really doing badly and I have to, to temporize the situation. But I will always start them on antibiotics first, give them an opportunity to cool off and then start to aggressively treat their IBD. Yeah. And say 72 hours in, uh, this person, you know, they got started on oral bank, they're compliant with it in the hospital, bowel movements, bloody diarrhea, unchanged. So then at that point, what that tells me is that this patient's IBD is probably out of control. I would do a flex sig just to convert, make sure there's no CMV, the other things you need to rule out in a patient with ulcerative colitis, really see how bad the inflammation is. And if this is a hospitalized patient at that point, I would probably start IV steroids, honestly, if I had to, or I would consider loading them on, I you know, infliximab at that point, um, because presumably they had an initial response to Humira. Non-compliance is what led them to be in this situation. So TNFs are potentially a good option for them. So in the acute severe UC setting, infliximab loading in the hospital uh, often can you know do wonders. So I would say I would get them on therapy and rule out other things, do a Flexig, and then if I need to either start them on steroids or just go right to loading infliximab. I would, I would keep the antibiotics on board though. I wouldn't stop them. Okay, perfect. Uh, okay, so Dr. Allegretti, this has been a really awesome conversation on the topic of C. diff. Um, I just, is there, I guess for our listeners who, you know, really appreciated you, the information you gave, is there a way that, you know, you prefer that people follow you? Like, do you have a Twitter account or, you know, some way we should, you know. Yeah, you? thank you. I do have a Twitter account. I'm at Dr. Jessica A. You can find me there uh, on all things C. diff and IBD. So if if that is of interest, um, you can find me there. And certainly um, any questions, feel free to reach out. Always happy to chat. Perfect. Uh, well, thank you. And uh, we are signing off from the Emory Digest podcast. Hang on to your hats, y'all. Medicine is a life-wandering process, and this podcast is part of that process for us. While every effort is taken to ensure the accuracy of the material presented, we realize that medicine is constantly changing, not to mention that art comes along with science. In a recorded conversation like this, we may make a mistake or get something wrong. We welcome comments, suggestions, or corrections. This material is presented for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to be, nor should it be understood or construed to be professional advice. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical or health advice to treat yourself or others, whether you're a credentialed medical provider or otherwise. Listening to this podcast does not constitute medical advice, nor does it engender a physician-patient relationship. This podcast should not be considered as a replacement for the services of a licensed, trained physician or healthcare professional. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. No author or guest of this podcast should be held liable or responsible for any errors or omissions on this podcast or for any damage you may suffer as a result of failing to seek competent medical or health advice from a professional that's familiar with your situation. Furthermore, this podcast is not to be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a, quote, standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for witness testimony. The views, opinions, and beliefs expressed in this podcast are those of the commentators alone, and we make no guarantee about the accuracy of the statements or opinions put forth. This podcast and its contents do not necessarily state or reflect the views, opinions, and beliefs of any employer, company, medical society, or other entity with which the host or guests are affiliated, professionally or otherwise. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. We do not accept any advertising money. Reference within the podcast to any specific commercial product, process, services by trade name, trademark manufacturer, or other does not necessarily constitute or imply its endorsement or recommendation. Basically, this podcast is solely educational, and don't sue us. All right. See you next time, guys.